Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us is Ellen Sentner, Morgan Stanley, whose research and her team research is really the talk of the industry this morning. Uh, She has been one of caution, among others, on economic growth. She reaffirms that sub-2% GDP. And the entire equities, bonds, currency, commodity team at Morgan Stanley adjusts to the locomotive being a little more subpar. Let's start with how you get in economics from economic growth over to an interest rate call. How does your interest rate team link those two together? Well, Someone like Matt Hornback, our global rate strategist, has to take into account all of the global economics team's uh, calls for various monetary policy movements. Uh, And so there's very much many moving parts. Uh, And that's not the only thing, looking at risk premiums around the world, global flows and and other uh, anticipating other events. But monetary policy making is a big piece of that. And when your economics team takes all further rate hikes off the table, uh, you know, that's going to play into how you think about yields. Uh, And he's got a very uh, uh, interesting, let's say, and and, uh, forecast for the 10 year that's raised eyebrows. I'm lost. And more importantly, if I stand in my uh, hallway with this is my library at home and look at my economic books, I'm lost. Sub 2% yield amid an inflation curve moving up and critically a core inflation curve that has a life of its own. It's not a very Irving Fisher morning, is it? No, and, and for, for core inflation, and we're focused like the Fed, of course, on, on core PCE prices, uh, you know, it's an interesting story there because there are some structural dynamics that are holding it down. Uh, and But it, we're also dealing with a good deal of, of disinflation that we're importing from abroad, particularly China, which has nothing to do with our dollar index. It has to do with global oversupply. Uh, and when our global teams are telling us that global demand is going to continue to flag, uh, that's going to keep downward pressure on core goods prices that we import in the U.S. And, and basically our forecast for core PCE growth, uh, inflation growth over our forecast horizon, is that it just stays an extremely tight band fluctuating between 1.6 and 1.7. That's not an overshoot. That's not I mean, an overshoot. Not, people talking about The Fed would love to overshoot. <clears throat> that's definitely okay, not an overshoot. Here's what I'm fascinated by. Can they manage a policy to get to an overshoot? The only thing that monetary policymakers know is to keep policy as accommodative as possible and try to get to that inflation overshoot. And it's not working for them so far. The thing that I do as a macroeconomist, right, is I'm not trying to predict what the Fed should do um, and how they should change their policies. I'm predicting what they will do. I get up every morning and I put on my Fed goggles and I look at the world through monetary policymakers' eyes when I'm trying to predict what they'll do. And it's one reason why it led us to expect only a December rate hike last year. Horse and cart. I've got where the economy is, and I've got a Fed trying to do good things or to not do bad things. We all understand that. Can they affect yields higher to create inflation? That is not an argument that I think that they would follow. 
right? So but a lot, I, I, there's I, a lot of hope there. There is a lot of hope there, right? And, and, and what really gets under their skin right now is that no matter what they do, how accommodative they remain, oh, and the oil prices are off the bottom and well-supported around $50 a barrel, <clears throat> it has not uh, raised inflation expectations. And that gets at the core of monetary policy making. Uh, what they've learned, right, what they grew up knowing was that if inflation is low and inflation expectations are falling, you do not touch rates. Uh, and it's very difficult for them to get over that hurdle when that is at the core of monetary policy thinking. Uh, and Janet Yellen has been very good at being realistic and admitting mm -hmm. that, look, we have limited tools. We have limited <clears throat> policy tools left, and therefore we have to be extraordinarily cautious. And would, would she love to, in private conversations, say fiscal policymakers <clears throat> right. need to pull their heads out of the sand and, and give us help around the globe? Okay. Well, one of your advantages is, like at every, uh, every other major firm, is a great sell-side component. Betsy Grasek is pretty, pretty, pretty good on the banks. And her research reports, which are hyper-numerical, clearly go through all the major and I don't mean like Morgan Stanley because you're not doing deposits and you're not you're not giving out to, to, to toasters right no you're not doing not that I, I haven't gotten one. Morgan Stanley but it banking in general that's got to affect the animal spirit because net interest margin isn't there with your Morgan Stanley call on yields is it exactly you Nim dovetail Betsy's world into your world Nim is slim um, and I know that one, and Betsy's incredible, and I know that one thing that we've been focused on, Betsy's been focused on, Adam Parker, our chief U.S. equity strategist, has been focused on, is that consumer balance sheet and the areas where consumer credit is growing, uh, and in growing in a very positive and healthy way, and that is that we are seeing credit demand grow. It's not anything of your uh, mm -hmm. growth rates that we had prior, but there are some very attractive areas of consumer credit that are growing. Okay, consumer credit is growing, but the artificiality of this fixed income market has to impinge upon everyone, including our economic growth. You, this is surreal what we're living in right now. It does impinge, Tom, <clears throat> and it does keep interest rates capped from rising very much because uh, one of the, the uh, things that happens post-financial crisis when you keep rates low for a very long time is that gradual transformation of a bank's balance sheet. Um, think of the Harp and Hamp programs where we refied every living being with a mortgage into a very low 30-year fixed rate. The effective yield on all outstanding mortgages is 3.8%. It's extraordinary. It's a record low. It's eye-popping. Right. And that means mm -hmm. that NIM compression happens much more quickly when the Fed is raising rates. Um, but that is one reason why policymakers do expect that the end game, let's say that they're able to continue to raise interest rates in this whatever we could call a, a, a normalization. Right. I don't think we know what normal <clears throat> is, but they do know that the normal is much lower than where it was before because NIM compression happens much sooner and you tip the economy into a recession with right. a much lower interest I'll, I'll, rate. I'll totally take your point on the rate of change of the financial system than affecting the Fed. To bring it back to the Fed, you've clearly said July's a dead meeting, September's a dead meeting. What do we do at the end of the year? Just go home and show up again in 2017? I think we lick our wounds after the election and, and try to come up with an idea of what the economy looks like under a new leadership. I understand in a balance sheet, the so low coupons help everybody within a balance sheet environment. But there's at some point where we have a new net present value of low interest rates 
that means you must amend valuations in a new milieu, a new terminal rate, right? Yeah, I think that uh, there are growing voices out there that are presuming that what we need is another good downturn <clears throat> in order to reset. Well, it's sort of like saying we need another good war, which, you know. Yeah, I mean, in a perverse way, you get the same result. Um, but let's not, let's hope that it doesn't come to that. I think, you know, when you're in this world where you can borrow uh, at practically negative rates, the opportunity cost for expanded federal government spending is extraordinarily okay. low. Uh, one of the interesting things about the whole debate about what the Fed should do and where interest rates are going is financial conditions. The Fed watches financial conditions, and they have been surprised to see, as many people have, that since Brexit, since the Brexit vote, financial conditions have gotten easier. Yeah, uh, I think that is an interesting thing that they will be talking about um, as as we've moved into the blackout period before next week's FOMC meeting. You know, on net financial conditions have eased and probably the, the biggest piece of that is lower bond yields. Uh, but as Ye Janet Yellen has noted in the past, uh, those lower bond yields reflect the fact that investors adjust their expectation for the future course of policy and therefore provide those more favorable financial conditions to support the uncertain outlook. You know, I think policymakers, as they chew on what's happened since Brexit at next week's meeting, at the very least, they can conclude, and we've seen this in, in some of the recent speeches, that uncertainty over the outlook has risen. I don't think they'll want to characterize the risks. I don't think they'll reinsert uh, a, 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 an assessment of the balance of risk, but I think they certainly can insert language that, that talks about uncertainty around the, the outlook has risen. You think? Uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, you think? No, nobody smiles or working these I days. I think that's a pretty fair uh, comment. I think that it's something that would be taken as, as dovish. It certainly doesn't sound like a statement that's setting them up to raise rates in September. No, she doesn't want to. She doesn't want anybody to walk away from that meeting think they're go with an idea of where they're going to go or what they're going to do. Right. I think ambiguity is what we're looking for in the statement next week. Yeah, that, which just makes it hard on us. Right, and markets, markets do market, not like do ambiguity. Not, no. They, they want to know where we're going. But still, and here's, the, here's where people push back against you and your, and your no Fed rate call, is where we are is, as somebody said this morning, priced for Armageddon. And we're a long way from that. Now, it was Ian Shepardson this morning said, you know, this is not 2008. We didn't go into depression then. We're certainly not going into depression now. So why do you need rates at this level? Right. So I agree. I agree that it is not 2008. And I think pretty quickly we could see that Brexit was not a systemic 2008-like issue. But every single time something like Brexit occurs in the world, it reminds us that the world is a scary place. And where do you go when the world is a scary place? Believe it or not, that, that reach for yield does include U.S. Treasuries, which are attractive, relatively speaking, when you look at the rest of the world. Are we priced for Armageddon? I would have to disagree, and I think many policymakers would as well. I mean, uh, Janet Yellen, Stan Fisher, uh, others have said that the appropriate equilibrium, real equilibrium rate right now is about flat. And they really don't know if and when that will pick May up. May I interrupt, Mike? I think this is the heart of the stimulating debate we've had this morning. Ian Shepardson, much more optimistic. Mike, you highlighted that as well. Ellen Zentner uh, with a more cautious view. Mike, the operative phrase for me is we really don't know. No, we don't. And that's what Ellen and I were just saying in the sense of the models don't work anymore. We're using up slack certainly in the labor market, mm -hmm. and inflation expectations are still going down. 
Yeah, and I think that that is the true conundrum for the Fed uh, that really gets under its skin. How do we have more stable oil prices that are higher at fifty dollars a barrel? Um, how is it that we've we've uh, presumably escaped the perils of, of Brexit and the U.S. economy continues to expand, and yet um, we we don't see the need to to raise interest rates further or be pressured on the inflation front. And investors are telling us you're never going to get to your two percent. Okay. Michael, I just looked at the real clear politics set of like polls. Like there's like 14 of them. My eyes are glazing over. A lot of people doing uh, horse race polls this year. Gallup is not among them. Gallup has been uh, holding back on that sort of thing, um, and I think probably for a very good reason. Frank Newport is the editor-in-chief of the Gallup poll, and uh, Frank, it's really hard to make heads or tails out of these numbers at this point, and they're so volatile based on the headlines, and we're so far away from the election that I imagine you wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in what we're seeing. That's right. I mean, a big complex subject, uh, clearly in terms of putting stock, as you just said, you cannot use these in any way whatsoever to try to predict what's going to happen in November. So they do give you an interesting look at where people's reactions are now when you call them up and ask them who they're going to vote for. But we've got the rest of this week in Cleveland and next week in Philadelphia and much, much to come. So at this point, uh, they tell us nothing in general about what's going to happen when people actually vote. Well, let's look at uh, a little bit of history. Leaving aside (laughs) what happened last night and and the way the convention is open, normally, what kind of advantage does a convention give to a candidate? I know they get a bounce, but is there an average? Is there something we should sort of look for uh, if, if everything went right for Donald Trump? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're back to those polls you're talking about. Uh, we had quantified it at some point in the past, like a five-point, quote, bounce, end quote, uh, coming out of the polls on the gap of where, how somebody's leading somebody else. Uh, and it varies widely. Uh, it is interesting to go back to 1992. Trump would love to do what Bill Clinton did then when he kind of turned everything around and became a hero. Of course, Ross Perot dropped out at that same time, which helped him. But that's an example, probably the, the example in contemporary polling where we've seen the biggest shift. So, yes, I right. would expect, uh, we would expect, everything else being equal, that uh, at the end of this week, Trump would be better positioned on whatever indicator you're using, a favorable image or horse race, than he was going in. But every convention is different, so we're going to have to wait and see. Well, uh, it's kind of was I was getting at, not necessarily the, the polls, and but you do get, you do normally dominate the publicity, right? And, and uh, that's right. And case. it usually uh, is to your advantage. Uh, you're totally dominating the news coverage. And typically, you come out looking better than you did when you went in. So this will be fascinating to see if it happens with, uh, with Donald uh, Trump uh, and the Republicans this time. Frank, I am fascinated by the character, the quality, the makeup of undecided voters this time. If they're undecided, how many are there as a percent? And is their ultimate outcome they just simply choose not to vote? Well, no, it's it's unclear. I mean, when people say they're undecided at this point, that could mean a variety of different things. Uh, some of these people are going to be people who are just less involved in the process. 
some of them have hidden preferences that we just can't pick up yet, and some of them will come along and actually vote. We've learned in polling in, uh, over the years that if you say, would you vote for Trump or Clinton, or haven't you made your mind up yet, a huge percent will choose the, uh, I haven't made my mind up yet. Uh, so you don't do that, and you try to force people. But actually, when they lean one way or the other, they end up voting that way. But typically, if we follow up and say, but is there a chance you'd vote for the other candidate, you can get up to a third of people who we call uncommitted, uh, who really could shift one way or the other. Uh, so you, the way I look at the world is you've got hardcore people on one side, hardcore people on the other side, and, and some group in the middle who, who could move one way or the other. What is it like this time in terms of the undecided vote? Because usually uh, you do see this this flow back and forth, but we usually don't see candidates as well-known or people with as strong an opinions about the two candidates. Uh, certainly people have strong opinions about the candidates. And again, we're not, I don't have an exact read from us on undecided voters because we're not asking the horse race, as you said. Uh, but clearly people have strong opinions. Uh, we used our scalometer rating, which is a minus five to a plus five to rate them, which is something that George Gallup used to use. He would show people this card. We'd go into their house and say, where would you put them on this card? So we went back and used that uh, in a poll so we could go back in history and look at where the candidates stand. And lo and behold, not a great shock, the percent who put themselves down on that highly unfavorable end of the spectrum for both Trump and for Clinton, more so for Trump, uh, is, is, is as negative as we've ever seen it. More so than Goldwater, for example, who was pretty unpopular back in 1964. So we've got candidates here about whom people have strong opinions, and those strong opinions tend to be on the negative side of the spectrum. You just raised an interesting question. I hadn't thought about this till you just w- w- mentioned Barry Goldwater. In those days, by the way, he lost. Yes, he did. <laughs> he lost by a few a few states. But in those days, you had uh, three television, really uh, sixty four, two television networks to to speak of doing the news, and you had a couple national papers and the wire services. But today, with social media and everything, can we really compare popularity, unpopularity, or uh, you know, is there just so much more information out there now that people develop a much deeper uh, opinion uh, of people than they might have in those days? Well, we can certainly compare. Uh, what you're saying is there may be some reasons why it would be different, right, back in the old days. You know, that's that's a doctoral dissertation, what you were just talking about. You know, in the old days, we shared media. Everybody looked at the common newspaper when you got up in the morning. As you said, you turned on one of the three major networks, and, and we got Huntley, Huntley Brinkley or uh, Walter Cronkite or uh, Frank Reynolds, right, and uh, giving us the news and so forth on the major networks, and now it's totally different. So, yeah, it's a vastly different way in which we get news and has a lot of implications uh, for how we form opinions, but nevertheless, it is a good comparison, regardless of where the information comes from. People are more negative now okay. than they were about Goldwater. Are these people speaking to the nation? I watched in awe last night. And how inside it felt. I grant it's the first night of the convention. I get that. But would you propose here, and for that matter, in Philadelphia, it has become an inward process versus reaching out again to undecideds? Uh, you know, that's a good question. And clearly this, uh, you know, all the bashing that went on last night was aimed at the, the partisans. But I think you've got a good point. 
I look at the people as a whole, that's my job, and I see coming emanating up from them is this major complaint about Congress and the way it's working and how disenfranchised people feel from these people they elect and send off to represent them. Second, I see people are concerned about jobs in the economy. Naturally, we always have as a third pillar in this stool people concerned about terrorism and national security. But I would think that's what they should be addressing in a more positive way. Uh, I didn't watch every single second last night, but I'm not sure I heard uh, tremendous ideas about how they were going to fix working with Congress uh, and, again, create more jobs. No, it was very focused on, obviously, Hillary Clinton bashing and based around national security and the threats that we face. Very negative uh, group of speeches. Does your polling show that that works better than positive uh, speeches, you know, positive tone? Well, you know, I think it's hard to say. Communications experts might say it, it kind of varies from each candidate uh, and each situation. So I'm not sure I could generalize to say it's always better to be positive and uplifting like Reagan was in 84. Look, it's morning in America, how wonderful we are and all that, as opposed to saying, look how terrible we are and, and uh, you've got to elect this other person as a reason for that. So I'm not sure which of those things works well. But, you know, Trump outside the convention has been pretty positive, right? America great again. You know, I'm going to be the greatest jobs president since creation. He says things along these lines. So his rhetoric has actually been pretty uplifting in some ways. Uh, when you look at him about positive outcomes down the way, right. so that wasn't necessarily represented last night. At 30, 30 seconds here, do vice presidents matter? Do vice presidents matter? Well, I don't think so. There's not much data that shows they do. Nobody knows Pence. We were in, interviewed about him over the weekend, by the way. Uh, he's an unknown. Most people deny. We ask him directly in answer to your question. We said to the public, is this going to make you more likely or less likely to vote for Trump? And the, the vast majority said no difference. So there's your answer right there. All right. Now I've got one for you, Frank, and for you, uh, Tom. 1964, Barry Goldwater running for president against Lyndon Johnson. Who was the anchor of ABC News? No, it wasn't Frank Reynolds. No, it was ABC's. Ron Cochran. Who? Yeah, exactly. He was followed in February of 1965 by the young Peter Jennings. Remember, he only lasted a couple of years and then came back in the 80s. I remember, very handsome Canadian you know, at that point, yes. right? It was a very, very, very uh, different time. And I remember the wonderful Frank McGee inventing much of what ABC does. Frank, thank you, sir. Frank Newport at Gallup this morning. Maury Harris. Maury Harris is the uh, chief uh, economist uh, for the folks at UBS. You heard Vinny uh, Deldrede saying, well, uh, economists expected no change, and we got this big move in housing starts. It reminds me of a joke my friend Megan sent me the other day. Um, Paul Krugman saying that the Irish economics is like leprechaun economics, and uh, the Irish Central Bank head saying, Paul, that's ridiculous. Nobody believes in economics anymore. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's really hard to tell uh, what's going to happen, isn't it? The models don't work. Well, I tell you, uh, it seemed that housing starts were due to go up, that we've had very good consumer confidence readings. We've got very, very cheap money. Uh, it's not, you know, although economists didn't forecast it, it's not completely surprising that starts would be as strong as they were in June. And I would not be surprised to see starts even stronger than this in coming months. Well, this is important because starts go into GDP. I mean, this is actual economic activity. 
That's right. And uh, this will feed into second quarter GDP, which has been tracking uh, at various points in time during the quarter, anywhere between 2% and 2 and 3 quarters percent, depending on uh, which week you tracked it and uh, with what data set you were using. Uh, but, you know, what also happened in the quarter that's even more important than housing was consumer spending. That we think consumer spending, after, even after you adjust for inflation, was probably up at about a 4.5% annual rate. So the consumers, the really strong part of the economy, the, the housing starts were a reminder of that this morning. And we need the consumer to pitch in right here because the weak part of the economy is business spending on capital goods. So we, we need this strong consumer sector to offset that weakness uh, in business spending. All right, two-part question. Well, I'll get back to the business spending in just a second. But uh, in terms of consumer spending, Ian Shepardson from Pantheon Economics was on Bloomberg Surveillance earlier today, said he thinks, given the data we're getting, we could get three handles on GDP for the third and fourth quarters. Uh, would you agree? That's not out of the question. That seems a little bit on the high side. Uh, and to get the three handle on GDP in the second half of the year, what you would need to see is a comeback in capital spending because your, your consumer spending right now is doing well, but it's about all that you could expect of it. Something else has to kick in. And uh, if, if, if you are that strong, which isn't out of the question, it would be capital goods. Uh, I suspect you're probably going to be closer to 2% than 3%, though. Well, the, uh, the, the question becomes then, this is the follow-on I want to ask, is at what point is consumer spending, 70% of the economy, strong enough that it forces capital spending? I mean, you've got to catch up to what your customers need. Well, even with some pretty good consumer spending, the reality is that you still have plenty of spare capacity, at least when you look at the Fed's industrial production and industrial output capacity utilization numbers. So uh, we, we need uh, the string of a number of further quarters of good consumer spending before it raises capital spending to uh, a, b a better level. Now, I think uh, there's factors other than demand and capacity utilization that are affecting capital spending right now. One on the top of that list would be political uncertainty, and we have only about four more months of that to go. Well, you know, we had Greek uncertainty. We had uh, this uncertainty, that uncertainty. Do you think that after we get a president elected, whomever it is, that business finally says it's time to get on with it, or is there just going to be something else? Well, I think that the type of uncertainty that American businesses face uh, with what are the policies going to be under a new president, whether it's a President Clinton or a President Trump, uh, those uncertainties are more important than, let's say, worrying about how much you're going to sell to UK or Europe. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen, the esteemed Maury Harris with us, leading the award-winning economics uh, team at UBS. We are thrilled that Dr. Harris is with us. Maury, I have never seen a polarity of opinion in American economics and American market economics like we have right now. Is that because of the distortion of interest rates filtering in to the goods producing economy and the banking economy leading to a jumble that nobody can get their hands on? Well, it's hard to get your hands on what's happening because you have so many unusual factors, as you pointed out, going on with interest rates being as low as they are, 
what also I think is a factor that changes uh, the ability of economists to understand the economy is the growing globalization over time, not just in trades and goods and services, right. but also in financial markets. Here's the key point, Joe Stiglitz. Is it a different globalization than 2006? I would say it's a different globalization in the sense that it's, it's larger the role of the third world, or I shouldn't use the term third world, emerging market countries uh, in the economy and financial markets is larger than it's been in the past. You know, that, uh, that was 10 years ago, and a lot changes in 10 years. The economy, is, uh, as we see with housing starts today, has been coming in stronger than forecast. I think every bank has a economic surprise index, and they're all running hot right now. They're they're all the 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 trend is up, but inflation expectations are going down. If we're using up slack, why aren't we generating inflation, and and why uh, is the market so convinced we're not going to see any? Well, you know, uh, the inflation is more evident in the numbers than it is in the inflation expectations measures. And uh, what's interesting here is that the core inflation, the ex-food and energy, the one that the Fed pays the most attention to, is already running up around 2% uh, this year. And it doesn't seem to have had that much effect on the public. And, and typically, these measures of inflation expectations move up and down with oil prices. But uh, you could understand why at the start of the year, inflation expectations would be low. But it's a bit of a puzzle right now because, in fact, oil prices have picked up uh, until very, very recently, and they're not down that much. And your headline CPI numbers have been picking up. My hunch is that these public measures of inflation expectations probably are going to pick up in the next couple of months. Well, if they do, what does that imply for the Fed and policy going forward? Because at this point, the Fed is still way above where the market is in terms of where the terminal rate should be and the path you take to get there. Well, uh, for the time being, you know, the Fed has said uh, we're worried about the effect of Brexit on the economy. But uh, I think by the time uh, you've looked at everything for this year, when they're at the December FOMC meeting, they're going to see, in fact, that Brexit was not such a big deal for the U.S. economy, that, in fact, core inflation has already picked up to around the 2% where they want it to be. And I think they get back on the tightening path by the end of the year. Maury, I just mentioned this to John Farrell over on Bloomberg Television. Of course, John knows this a lot better than any of us us do with his, his uh, living in England. But I, w- I would just suggest the most important announcement of the day is Wells Fargo, like your UBS, is in London and in the city. They're going to take a building. They're going to buy a building near King William Street near the Bank of England. And it, to me, it's the first tea leave of what people actually do with their money, like UBS near Liverpool Street uh, said, we're going to stay here years ago. I mean, it's, it's again, pushing against that Brexit gloom. Well, uh, one thing that happens in in London uh, post the Brexit vote is that stuff all of a sudden gets cheaper. And prices come down, and that can make it more attractive to stay in certain types of real estate. What does the world look like to you? I was going to say, is there a bright spot in the world? But what does overall global growth say to you? You you have this Morgan Stanley call for 1% U.S. 
Treasury 10-year yields next year because their view is global growth is slowing tremendously. I got an, another research note from people today saying six reasons why yields are going to be going up, and their reason, number one, is that global growth is picking up. <laughs> so who's right? Well, I, I think, in fact, uh, global growth probably is picking up, uh, that you had some very soft spots with the emerging market countries uh, that won't be as soft next year. Uh, and the United States uh, will probably have a slightly better year next year than we had last year. And I think uh, Europe weathers the storm and uncertainty uh, over the Brexit. So uh, I think that 15 months from now, when we look at how did 1987 yeah. work out, it's probably going to be a little bit better than 2016, 2017 ought to look better. Maury, is the Fed using conventional theory now? The fact is you know, you've done so well with your team of gaming the path out of this financial crisis. It's been a little sloggy recently for GDP, no question about that. Are we using conventional theory now, or is it really ad hoc announcement to announcement? I think it's closer to ad hocery than it is conventional theory. For global central banks, when you're starting to experiment with negative rates, uh, you're certainly getting into, as you called it, ad hocery. But e even here in the United mm. States, if you look at what's happened over the last couple of years, uh, with you know having this tremendous amount of QE, uh, that is something that just w was very unconventional. And they're still holding all those bonds off the market, so there still is a big QE right. effect on rates. Maury Hurst, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With uh, UBS. I take immense issue with Wikipedia. It says Michael Barone, parentheses, pundit, close parentheses. Oh, yeah. That, Michael that's... Barone is far removed from being a pundit of any pundit I know. His The Almanac of American Politics is absolutely definitive. Everybody owns it. The hardcover is $125. That's what I have. He, he is the Bible maker of all the punditry out there and does it with math and acuity. And we're honored to have from the Washington Examiner and other uh, venues that he has. Michael, with the polarization of our political process, with gerrymandering and in the incumbency that we're with, obviously it's a different book than it was 20, 30 years ago. Well, how does it color the House of Representatives when you put that book together? What do you see that we don't see in the everyday discourse? Well, you've got an increasing number of, uh, of voters, not just districts, not just gerrymandered districts, but voters who have been voting pretty consistently for one party or for the other. I mean, um, every so often you read an article about, well, there's more people that say they're independents today yeah, but when you look at how they vote, some independents vote for all the Republicans, some independents vote for all the Democrats, and they're they're not acting very independent. They're acting like supporters of one party or another, which is you know, a legitimate thing to be. I think part of it is that when I started writing Almanac American Politics in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you still had a lot of people that were voting their Civil War preference from 100 years before. Uh, you still had uh, people voting up and down, whether they were for Franklin Roosevelt, whether for they were for the industrial unions or for management of the big industrial companies, uh, like in my home state of Michigan. And what's happened in the meantime is that politics has become more, like, more highly correlated with cultural issues. 
uh, which I would argue is actually sort of the default mode in American history, but that's a side argument uh, to your question. And those issues are often very personal and important. Where do you feel on, um, you know, issues of abortion, same-sex marriage, a variety of other cultural issues that have come forward? Uh, so you have the demographic factor most highly correlated with voting behavior has turned out, in, you know, in the recent past at least, to be religion or degree of religiosity within each sectarian group. That's different uh, from, you know, 1960 when, according to Gallup, 78% of Catholics voted for John Kennedy and 63% of white Protestants voted for Richard Nixon. If you look at Catholics, uh, white Catholics now and white Protestants, uh, they vote pretty much the same. You know, if they're more religious, they tend to vote more Republican. If they're less religious or observant, they tend to vote Democratic. And so in that situation, people don't change their party that often. In addition, you had... The generations of Americans that experienced and went through the Great Depression and World War II, they were inclined to, they knew what a depression was like. They knew what a world war was like. We lost not 4,000 people, but 400,000 people. And uh, when they had a president who seemed to produce uh, peace and prosperity, they rewarded him with a landslide win. 1984, and I think one reason is we've got an electorate that doesn't remember the Great Depression. We've got an electorate that doesn't have firsthand memory of World War II, and they're not willing to cast aside their usual partisan preferences, which are based very often on personal issues that are very important in their personal lives. They're not willing to cast those aside because they haven't had a Great Depression. You know, we did have a financial yeah. crisis, but not a Great Depression. We haven't had a world war. We've been, you know, uh, bemoaning the fact that uh, 4,000 people died in Iraq at 400,000 in World War II. And some people stick with, have been sticking with their partisan things. Now, 2016 could turn out to be the end of that period, with me, Donald Trump in particular uh, scrambling the party lines. But we'll see about that. Can I ask you very quickly, uh, as we only have about a minute left here, um, you got to buy the uh, Almanac of American Politics to know what's happening in the uh, second district, congressional district of Indiana, very working class. The, the bottom line question, is the man who is going to be the vice presidential candidate going to help carry that district for Donald Trump? Does the vice presidential selection mean anything? Well, I don't think that, uh, you know, Mike Pence is going to add huge numbers of votes. I think that Donald Trump was probably going to carry Indiana in the general election. In any case, it's more Republican than the surrounding uh, Midwestern states, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, um, in election after election. I think, you know, it's interesting. Pence was the governor of Indiana. Indiana is the number one manufacturing state. You know, Trump has talked a lot about we're going to bring back manufacturing jobs. Indiana typically, and, you know, the statistics change a little bit from year to year, but it, it remains the number one state in, um, in manufacturing as a percentage of jobs and as a percentage of GDP. It is the number one state in terms of producing engineer graduates, uh, at least Purdue University, which is a state university, mm. where former Governor Mitch Daniels is the president of the university, yeah. produces more engineers than any other university right. in America. Michael Barone, we've oh. got to throw you off air because you just mentioned Purdue University. Our executive producer is from Purdue University, and Mike McKee and I hear about Purdue yeah, we're University. We're not going to hear the end of this. Twenty. Four <laughs> seven, Michael Barone. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. We're the Washington Examiner, and of course, the classic textbook, the Almanac of American Politics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.